This episode of The Curbsiders is brought to you in partnership with the American College of Physicians. ACP members can claim free CME and mock credit at www.acponline.org forward slash curbsiders. Rahul, right. what is it called when you can't remember things? Recall bias. <laughs> because, recall bias. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Alzheimer's? I'm so done. <laughs> that, Just cut everything that I said tonight. Start that's got to be the... Uh, that's going to be the... That's got to be the, the bumper. is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. But more of the views and expressed on this podcast are solely those of those should not be interpreted for the official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are not. Pretty much we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know if you're wrong. Gentlemen, we're back. That's we're, right, we are We are mixing Whoa. holidays on all sorts of weird ways <laughs> because... <laughs> There's a lot of Thanksgiving. There's a lot of Thanksgiving. That's right. (laughs) That's I could have said it better, Chris. Uh, We're recording this closer to Halloween, and this is going to air closer to Thanksgiving. Yeah. So a lot of weird food metaphors in this one. It's it's just fantastic. So much meat. You guys are in for just a treat. (laughs) All right. With us tonight is Chris the Chew Man Chew. Chris, you want to tell people what they're in for? Yeah, so today is one of our um, hotcakes episodes, which is the Curbsiders version of the Journal Club. We are looking at a bunch of uh, quote-unquote guidelines from community-acquired pneumonia to the new asthma guidelines to maybe some guidelines pertaining to red meats. So, um, and we actually have a... And processed meat. (laughs) And processed meats. And we actually have a a new team member joining us today who's going to be our resident statistician. And Paul's got a little bit of his bio. Sure. And, and not, not a resident, just to be clear. Um, oh, correct. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, it's, it's nice that we have someone to, to lend some credibility to this, this episode, um, though we ruined it with a high kick rating. But I'm pleased to introduce our friend Rahul Ganatra. He is a medical attending and director of continuing medical education for the medical service at VA Boston Healthcare System. Uh, Dr. Ganatra fell in love with clinical epidemiology and public health while taking night classes for his MPH during medical school and went on to become an applied epidemiology fellow at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. He completed his residency and chief residency in internal medicine at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, where he worked as a hospitalist for two years before coming to the VA, where where he is currently the faculty mentor for the Resident Journal Club. In addition to critical appraisal, he loves cool animal facts and subjecting friends and colleagues to tirades about animal physiology. I don't think we heard any cool animal facts unless we're talking about the dead ones. Rahul, if you're Rahul, if you're listening to this, I demand animal facts and physiology did you, for next episode. Did, did you read that fresh, like the? Because uh, <laughs> <laughs> as soon as you read that, you you uh, started laughing. Uh, spoiler alert to the listeners at home: there are no cool animal facts in this particular episode. Sarah's the one who wrote up the bio, so that's good. All right, so welcome back to Hotcakes. We have oh, a couple, hi, Chris. Hey, we have a couple of really awesome uh, articles slash guidelines slash things that we're looking at this time, <laughs> and now we have Rahul to help us with our uh, limited statistical knowledge and help um, help boost ours and our our, our listeners' um, knowledge of statistics. Is that right, Rahul? Sound good? That is right. <laughs> I will do my best. All right. Yeah, Rahul, this is this is your first time on the show. We we've read your bio, but maybe you could give people like a one-liner like how do you how do you introduce yourself to people or how would you describe yourself? 
Sure. Uh, well, it depends where I am. If I'm at like a dinner party, then I try and keep it as like, you know, not related to statistics as possible. Uh -huh. um, if I'm trying to sort of tell somebody why I find this stuff interesting, um, you know, I, found, I really love uh, Journal Club as a conference because it's everybody's least favorite conference. So there's no way to up. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I tell the chief residents that to try to get them a little excited about doing something that is really important, but we just don't get trained on uh, well enough, in my view. So uh, it's something I've cared about for a long time. I've had the luxury of having a lot of great mentors who've been really skilled at this, and I'm just doing my part to try to pass on the knowledge. Yeah, we've been we've been running a very novice journal club for a <laughs> yeah. little over a year now. <laughs> So we're really welcome to have someone with actual chops. So thank you. Maybe we can readdress the uh, marijuana studies again. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not. They're fine. They're... Now, Raul, you're, you're recommended to us from a good friend of ours, Tony Brew. Is that right? How do you know Tony? That is right. So Tony, uh, I, um, back in the day, was a chief resident at the West Roxbury VA. And uh, Tony Brew was my boss at that time. So that basically was a year of just having kind of nerdy, you know, hour long conversations in his office and then, you know, putting conferences together. Uh, uh, and now I, I, in my capacity as a hospitalist at the West Roxbury VA, we are colleagues. Hmm. That's awesome. Our chief residents just take attendance all the time. <laughs> all right, let's get into this. Let's get into this first. Uh, I don't even want to call it a study, but the first thing we wanted to bring up on the show it, are the the ATS and IDSA 2019 Community-Acquired Pneumonia Clinical Practice Guidelines. Uh, the, the lead authors were Metley and Waterer, and these these had some, you know, not not a major overhaul to the guidelines, but there were definitely some interesting things that, that we wanted to talk about here. Uh, one thing, and I, th I feel like we're just like be going to be beating this one to death in the near future. Uh, Paul and Stuart, mm -hmm. we've we've recorded several shows about this, but uh, procalcitonin. Uh, um, yeah, we love it. Not right? <laughs> procalcitonin. The value of the procalcitonin should not should not prevent you from starting antibiotics on somebody with pneumonia. It's not sensitive enough. So please, please don't so do think that. Think about it okay? like CRP. A new drinking game for our listeners at home. Anytime we say the word procalcitonin, just take a drink, and then when you're dead, we're sorry. <laughs> well, then we'll just check a procalcitonin. Uh, but okay, but more interesting things to talk about this this whole concept of aspiration pneumonia. I you know I was I was so glad that they put something in here about it. I, I don't know that it was as widely talked about, but they they basically said that the early studies on aspiration pneumonia. It seems like maybe they were done later in the course or the way that they collected uh, the samples. They just got, they grew more anaerobic bacteria, but more recent studies have not reproduced that. And they actually recommend not routinely covering, like using anaerobic coverage for aspiration pneumonia because like healthy adults, we know aspirate all the time. And even if someone has a big aspiration event, it's often aspiration pneumonitis and you don't even necessarily need to put that person on antibiotics uh, and certainly not add a special anaerobic antibiotic, uh, which often is clindamycin, which is very C. diff unfriendly. Uh, sorry, Paul. I know that used to be one of your, your favorite drugs. Yeah, but this is this is something that had come up on rounds a bunch in the past year or so for me, and, and I just, I was glad that they actually called this out and said, don't do it. So the coverage should not be any different um, if even if someone, you suspect someone is, uh, I'm using quotes, aspirating. 
So Chris, can you tell can you tell the audience why is HCAP dead? I know you have a lot to say about this topic. Yeah, so let, let's define some terms because some people may not know these terms. So HCAP is healthcare associated pneumonia. And so we're talking about the same the, thing as HAP? No, it's not, because that's hospital acquired mm-hmm. pneumonia. And so there traditionally there was um, there was guidelines several years ago about um, hosp- healthcare acquired pneumonia. And it was these uh, groups of people who were, you know, either recently in the hospital or were in institutions like nursing homes or on dialysis who they thought had higher risk for things like MRSA. And so um, they were sort of lumped together with our um, hospital acquired pneumonias in terms of coverage. Unfortunately, it hasn't actually panned out to be that way. And so um, a couple, was it last year when the um, hospital acquired pneumonia and ventilator associated pneumonia gu- guidelines came up. They actually excluded H cap altogether in those right. in those guidelines when they were pr- traditionally in that guidelines, saying that they didn't find that there was any good evidence that being more aggressive about these patients, or at least using these parameters to um, figure out if these are patients were higher risk, were actually appropriate. And then they said, well, if we are going to address these, we actually may add them to the community acquired pneumonia guidelines. So I actually wrote a whole tutorial on this, and literally like two days after I did that tutorial, the CAP guidelines came out, and I was like, oh, they didn't include HCAP either in this. So, Are you saying you're a precog? <laughs> yes. Well, let's just appreciate the fact that these guidelines are replacing 12-year-old guidelines. Yes. Okay, so let me let me tell you the practical tips about what to do about this HCAP situation because you still do have to think about who the the two main bugs they're talking about are MRSA, so methicillin resistant Staph aureus and Pseudomonas, and the the best predictors of who might have that is somebody who's had that cultured in the past or somebody with like a recent hospitalization and parenteral antibiotic exposure. But really, what the guideline writers are hoping is going to happen is that. If patient has a risk factor, they'll have blood and sputum cultures sent, and that mm-hmm. eventually, over time, will bu- will build up this local data where you can kind of you can know what's the rate of MRSA or pseudomonas pneumonia within your hospital, and then that can guide your practice. But they did they do fully understand that nowadays most people do not have that data available to them. Like for skin and soft tissue infections, I think it's available a lot, probably UTIs, but. Probably not as much pneumonia. And if you if so, you recall, I talked about a study about this where nose pickers who lie are at the highest oh risk. No. <laughs> and okay, so you mentioned the nose. Thank you, Stuart. That's a fantastic transition. So MRSA swabs of the nares actually there those there's like robust data that that's a good way to sort of rapidly be able to say like okay this person probably does not uh, need MRSA coverage uh, even before you get the sputum or blood cultures back, but. They they do they also mention that even if the MRSA swab is positive, you don't necessarily have to keep on vancomycin or another anti MRSA agent because the positive predictive value of that is not great. So your your kind of your clinical judgment there based on like if the person has like a cavitary or necrotizing pneumonia, they're super sick, they're growing MRSA in their blood. Probably you, you got to keep the vanco on. Um, probably, yeah. but it's probably a good yeah. Choice. But so so <laughs> yeah. so sort of. You, thinking about these risk factors again, it's it's 
if they've grown MRSA or Pseudomonas in the past, if they've been hospitalized and on parenteral antibiotics recently, um, then you're probably going to send blood and sputum cultures. And if, if they're really sick, just start them on the extended spectrum to cover those agents. And then you can rapidly, around like 48 hours, you can narrow the antibiotics. Right. Interestingly, for outpatients, they say that for uh, anybody with comorbidities, they yeah. uh, would permit monotherapy with a respiratory fluoroquinolone. And I was actually a little surprised that they didn't come down a little more strongly against quinolones. Yeah. There are other yeah. kind of effective alternatives in there. Especially since those patients are also at higher risk of those black box warnings. Yeah. But they do they do say that for um for for mo- the comorbidities that you're talking about is basically anyone with like chronic organ fi- like disease, so heart, lung, liver, renal, or if they have diabetes, alcohol use disorder, cancer, asplenia. Um, so most internal medicine patients are are not going to be like someone that you can just give a macrolide and call it a day or doxycycline and call it a day. You're going to have to give them right. um, some of the other, some of the more, the stronger agents. So now are we giving them steroids now or not? <laughs> you tell me, Chris, I, I think you're the expert <laughs> on the, on this one. Oh, no, it, it, no, this actually just came, this came on with Twitter as well. So, you know, just as um, I think now they say steroids should only be used in refractory shock and should not be used um, um, commonly. I think there was a lot of discussion because the Cochrane reviews said otherwise, correct? Does, did anyone else look at this data? It's it's been a while since I looked at it. I mean, the in the past when we when we did our um, pneumonia episode with Uncle Bob and I had looked at it. I mean, the there were really wide confidence intervals for the and and really kind of small numbers of for benefit. And I just wasn't that convinced that that steroids were were working. But I I can't claim to be an expert on it. Rule, you got something, Chris? You're talking about the 2017 uh, review Stern at all? Yes, I think so. All right. You know, one of my favorite things about the Cochrane collaboration is they always put in a statement that's kind of a plain language summary. And, you know, quite honestly, that's usually where I look first because I want to know what their distillation is. Then I go back and read everything. And they also put in a statement about the quality of the evidence, which is really, really paramount when you're interpreting professional society guidelines. Um, they note in this review that they downgraded the quality of evidence due to issues with study design, unclear results, results are not similar across studies. So I, I think that low quality of evidence probably played into the recommendations we see in the ATS IDSA guidelines. Um, and they do note the author's conclusions, corticosteroid therapy reduced mortality and morbidity in adults with severe CAP. The number needed to treat for an additional beneficial outcome was 18 patients to prevent one death. Um, they talk a little bit more about that, but I think overall the, the lower than expected quality of evidence was probably what led to that recommendation in the ATS Hmm. guidelines. Okay. So I would give, I would give this, uh, this guidelines update, I would say four, four and a half hotcakes is, can I give a half a hotcake? Uh, it's six is a full stack. So I, I give it four and a half. I, I thought it was. You know, it didn't have anything that earth shattering, but I did. I did like. Uh, I thought it was very clear, and uh, it's it's very easy to understand, which I like. I don't. I don't always understand things, Paul. You know that. <laughs> no, I like the four and a half because yeah, reading this, I, it was kind of like, oh yeah, sure. So, and if I re- that's the way I'm responding, then it's probably a decent guideline. <laughs> I don't know I just, if we explained to Rahul what the what the hotcakes were. It's okay. He can figure out. Figure up. He can figure out. No, 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 no. He's our He's guest. A, He's a new member of the team. He deserves to understand this extremely well, I don't even precise metric. It. 
Do you Sarah, want to explain? As it? the as our yes. lead producer, I feel like it's your job to do that. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just I mean I, I wasn't I mean, would you like to do the honors? Is that's how I meant it. Oh, sure. So <laughs> Uh, don't mind if I do. Um, so the full stack, as Matt said, is is six hotcakes. And so that's if that is going to be really practice changing, potentially earth shattering, like really big deal to you. Um, half stack, I think, is kind of middle of the road, probably not going to change your clinical practice. But, you know, you, you wouldn't turn it away if it was the free breakfast at the hotel kind of thing. Um, in honor of spooky Halloween, I do think that they should be pumpkin pancakes. So... Matt, would you revise your your uh, 4.5 rating now knowing that they are, in fact, pumpkin pancakes? <laughs> I don't know why you're laughing. A lot about how much serious. Sarah, you love Halloween. I could tell. So, I mean, the, the, <laughs> the, cop, the copy for this uh, one in the show summary is just fantastic. Yes, I would say these. Can I make them spooky cakes? Uh, <laughs> of course. I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll just make it four point. I'll, I'll stick with four point five, but they're spooky. This is going Perfect. nowhere fast. Spooky cakes. <laughs> let's let's move on to the next one, Chris. All right, so I get the honors of the next one because I think they're very interesting. So we yes. have the Global Initiative for Asthma, otherwise known as GINA, and they call themselves a strategy and not a guideline, so I just want to make sure that's clear. So this is the first update in 30 years in terms of this strategy. And so um, one of the, the big takeaway is, this just came out, and I think about a week or so ago, is there, there's a large change. So they, the, one of the big first changes is um, at the beginning of therapy for those patients with intermittent asthma, they said that ICS LABAs, so that would be um, inhaled corticosteroids with a LABA was a long-acting albuterol? Is that what it is? Um, long-acting long beta agonist? Yeah. There, there you go. <laughs> Can be prescribed for both maintenance and as a rescue inhaler. And so that's the, one of the big first points. The second point would be that ICS labs can also be started even in those with mild asthma versus um, the previous recommendations where ICS uh, was was started along with step-up ther- therapy to ICS labs. And then the last would be albuterol monotherapy can actually be uh, avoided entirely with these DUGINA guidelines, although they don't specifically advise against it. Now, now th- th- this is based on the pharmacokinetics and dynamics of formoterol versus salmeterol. So this, uh, it's, it is it is recommended against to use salmeterol based on the time to onset for salmeterol. And I think at this Which is also, like two hours. Yeah, it's, it's one, one to three hours. So so formoterol is, is around five minutes for time to onset, which is around the same for albuterol, actually. So it has about the same um, time to onset. And uh, the problem, the only significant issue that I have with this trial is, or not this trial, but these guidelines are... Strategy. Strategy (laughs) is based on the data from the Sigma 1 and 2 trials. Um, I I, I don't have an issue with using um, budesonide for motorol combination, but the concern that I have is that the formulation that was used in the Sigma trials is actually different than what's currently available in the U.S. And this is the reason why what is currently available in the United States is not FDA approved for PRN usage. Um, and I can lob that over to Rahul if he wants to take it Wait, from there. How do they differ, Stuart? What, it's what the dose. Of- so it's the dosage and also the carrier, uh, or not not the carrier. It's it's the way that it's that it's administered. So the dosage in the United States is four point five slash one sixty. The dosage that was used in the trials was six slash two hundred. The question is whether or not that dosage difference really has a difference in outcomes. I, I don't know if I can speak to that. Um, 
I do were know they that. Metered, and were they, is it a metered dose inhaler or like a dry powder? Uh, I, I would have to look it up because it's not available in the United States. Um, I can't speak to that. Rahul, go ahead. Take it away. But, <laughs> yeah, boy, what to say about these papers. Um, okay, so uh, so Stuart, your, your thought about the dose difference. Um, I, I agree. It's a little bit hard to know uh, what the difference would be in the real world in the United States. Um as compared with you know what they with the doses they used in this paper, um, the sigma one and two trials are fascinating trials for right. what they were able to or what they you know purported to to test. Um, I can tell you a little bit more about how I think these results would translate to the real world if this would be a good time to do that. Absolutely. Yes. Um, okay. So whenever I'm looking at a randomized controlled trial or really any study to try to answer a clinical question, the three things that you always have to start with, or number one, what is the sort of basic question the authors are trying to answer? Number two, what was the comparison they did and how are the groups defined? And number three, what were the main results that they found? That's kind of the foundation, in my view, for all critical appraisal, and we can you know, form an opinion about the real-world impact from there. So for Sigma-1, the question they were trying to answer was, in patients with mild asthma, is as-needed use of the inhaled glucocorticoid plus the fomoterol, um, is that a reasonable alternative to scheduled use? And the reason I say reasonable alternative instead of something more specific is they actually had two hypotheses in this paper. One of them was a superiority hypothesis. They were testing whether the as-needed budesonide fomoterol was superior to as-needed terbutaline, so just a short-acting beta agonist. So that was a first hypothesis. And then if that was, in fact, better, which it was, then they went on to answer a second question, which was, is as-needed budesonide for motorol not worse or non-inferior than scheduled budesonide with as-needed terbutaline? And that they were not able to demonstrate. So it's kind of an interesting two-part study question. And the way that I interpret these results is that, you know, at least in comparison to using a short-acting beta agonist, yes, it does look like as needed inhaled corticosteroid with a LABA is good. But then with regard to, you know, how does that compare to, oh, and I should specify with regard, their primary outcome was weeks of well-controlled asthma. Um, and then with regard to the, the second part there, uh, comparing that to budesonide maintenance, um, they were not able to demonstrate non-inferiority there. So there was not as good of symptom control with the as-needed corticosteroid with, uh, as compared with the scheduled uh, budesonide. That was probably too much. And I think, they, I think the point they made, the, the, kind of the caveat about, about the, the latter there, is that the, the, the as-needed you know, budesonide for motor oil use was they got less of a steroid dose than like, you know, if the person was taking it every day. So that was the, that was kind of the benefit, the benefit there. But they got less than 20% of the amount of steroid that people who were taking budesonide every day. Yeah. I I think the interesting thing about Gina, just to, before we get into Sigma two, the the reason they were looking at this and the reason that they want to do this is because they're even people with mild asthma, they say, can have like severe exacerbations and can have death from like asthma exacerbations. So they don't, and, and people, they, they list all this and they, they list in, the, in this uh, document that some of the downsides of using a short-acting uh, beta agonist, a SABA, is that basically 
it, it, people can have increased risk of exacerbations, people can have decreased lung function and increased allergic response, increased airway inflammation. And I guess the decreased lung function is maybe because of the fact that they're not using anything that would decrease inflammation because asthma is more than just bronchoconstriction. There's inflammation around. And, and I think that's why they're, they're trying to sort of condition people to the fact that they should be using uh, an inhaled corticosteroid to control at least like some baseline symptoms. Uh, this and is I, whereas we've been uh, conditioned to think completely otherwise, right? So I think one of the big things was the the SMART trial, which also came out last year, um, where they were sort of looking, uh, it was like a meta-analysis RCTs, because really they've actually been sort of doing this sort of strategy in Europe for quite some time. Whereas, you know, growing up in the US and for someone who actually grew up with childhood asthma, it was like, you're using your you're using your inhalers wrong. I mean, as a pediatrician too, you're using your inhalers wrong if you're not starting off with that SABA first. And so, um, with all these studies with Sigma One, Sigma Two, and the Smart Trial, which I just brought up last year, it was like, oh, maybe that type of strategy actually does work, or at least that's the hypothesis. And I think, you know, this you change. You mean the United really... States isn't the doesn't have the best medical care? <laughs> I'm confused. All right, Stuart, let's not put the whole country on blast here. <laughs> and I, I think one thing to point out is, you know, in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, editorial, I, I think with the uh, talking about the Sigma 1, Sigma 2, um, Dr. Lazarus, who wrote that editorial, said that based on, I, I, you know, based on his calculations, you know, sort of like back of the napkin type calculations, he was saying, you know, a switch to this complete um, to this um, way of thinking could actually have maybe a $1 billion per year um, savings in the U.S. alone. I'm, I'm not sure if all that calculation actually works out, but I think that's sort of the an only, interesting thing as well. Yeah, the only problem I would have with that, I, I, I'm totally for using uh, LABA ICS. The one concern I have is that it's more expensive than albuterol. And so you'd have yeah. to do a cost offset to see. So that's probably cost savings from ER and and hospitalizations, I'd have to go go through and do a cost benefit analysis, which I I can do it, right? But because you, you have like how many millions of people right. on just a Saba, right. who would now have to buy the more expensive thing, right? And here's the other thing: it's the ICS that's the most expensive component in that in that medication. So actually, what I would love to see is what as needed for Motorol by itself, comparing it to as needed for Motorol budesonide. I, I totally understand what, what you're saying, but it's also, it's potentially a cheaper strategy that may lead to a non-inferior outcome. Now, yeah. And and I think that's part of the practical things that we have to keep in mind too, as people look at using the strategy going forward is one is not FDA approved yet. So use the way they're exp explaining in the U S would be off label Two, um, a lot of insurance are, are still not to catch up on this. So if, providers are, are going to start prescribing this in clinic right now. You're going to get a lot of pushback possibly from insurers, insurances who will say, this is too early. You need prior offs and probably maybe denying people actually being able to use them this way. So I think those are things to, to keep in mind moving forward. So one last thing I just wanted to add, you know, we're not actually sacrificing that much by using budesonide as needed as opposed to scheduled because their primary outcome of weeks of well-controlled asthma is only a 3.3% fewer weeks with the as needed compared to the scheduled. And that's 12 days of, you know, per year, fewer ratings of well-controlled asthma. So we're not actually sacrificing that much for uh, the benefit of much lower cumulative doses of steroids uh, mm -hmm. and an equivalent uh, annual rate of severe exacerbations with scheduled budesonide. All right. I think we're going to move on, but I'm going to give my hotcakes and I'm going to give it uh, 
five out of six hotcakes. And for people who want to look at these, um, quote, uh, the strategy a little more, um, it'll be in the show notes, but it'll be at ginaasthma.org. So the next one... Hold, huh? hold on, I, I want to Wait. mention something. Yeah. If we come back to these in about two to three years and we re-examine the global initiatives for asthma, it'll be called Regina. <laughs> I'm glad you interrupted Sarah for that. Sarah, what was your question? <laughs> Um, I really want to make a Mean Girls reference right now, but um, (laughs) (laughs) um, you know what? I forgot. Let's just move. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Oh, no. I wanted to ask Chris if uh, how many hotcakes was that? I said five out of six. Okay, but were they spooky? Yes. Spooky. Perfect. Are we just, we're forgoing the whole pumpkin thing now? That's not, we're going to pretend like that never happened. (laughs) No, I want to do the pumpkin cakes, but no one's. Because I feel like that changes the metric entirely. Like, that's what I mean. That's why I said, are you going to adjust your rating based on the pumpkin element? Because pumpkin's great. And like, yeah. I'll, I'll say it. And then it's so, intense, like, though. So like three pumpkin would be like equivalent to like four and a half regular exactly. hotcakes. Like it's a whole thing. Paul gets it. Paul gets it. <laughs> How dare you? How dare you? <laughs> you baited him in, Sarah. I'm impressed. He he usually just totally tunes out when we're I talking hotcakes. Uh, yeah. Yes. Well, Paul, it's Red your turn meat. to present now. So. Uh, yeah. The, the main event. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, I'm 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 presenting a pair of articles, or uh, not articles. Uh, one's a one's a study, and one is a guideline recommendation about meat. Just a just it's a lot of meat talk, guys. And I, it's it's so much meat. And I, I reading through it, just reading the words red meat and red processed meat, non-processed red meat. Like it's I was actually semi nauseous by the end of it. Just that you're aware of my own bias. But this this these two. Um, these two articles in the annals, I think, brought up a lot of controversy. There's been just tons of editorials generated about them. There's um, some – they were newsworthy, which I think is why they're worth talking about. So I just wanted to to talk through them with the gang to kind of see what you guys thought about them. Um, so the first one I'm going to talk about is the red and processed meat consumption and risk for all-cause mortality and cardiometabolic outcomes. And this would be um, – Zeradkar et al. And this is, um, as I said, in the annals. And so for the background for this, their contention is that previous studies regarding red and processed meat have been inconsistent and that prior studies didn't address bias and were inconsistent in their evaluation of the certainty of evidence. And because of that, these impacted credibility. And so the concern is that you might be in the pocket of big vegetable. And so this is <laughs> this group, this Nutrarex group is an independent group. They, they define themselves as a group with clinical, nutritional, and public health content expertise, skilled in methodology of systematic reviews and practice guidelines, who are unencumbered by institutional constraints and conflicts of interest, aiming to produce trustworthy nutritional guideline recommendations, sorry, big breath, based on the values, attitudes, and preferences of patients and community members. So very specific goals. But this is the Nutrix group, because it's one of the first things I ask myself as I'm reading through this is, I don't think I've heard of guidelines from this group before. But in any case, this group purported to kind of look at things independently so that we didn't have to worry about bias and sort of imperfect evidence. So they wanted one study that was a systematic review of cohort studies addressing association between red meat mortality, cardiometabolic outcomes, quality of life, and diet satisfaction. And so what they did is they looked at cohort studies, which by their own definitions um, were low-quality evidence. So a cohort study can't be any better than low-quality evidence, at least in as much as I understand this. And those studies enrolled at least 1,000 adults who were consuming red or processed meats and looked at one or more outcomes of interest. And those outcomes included all-cause mortality, cardiovascular mortality, cardiovascular disease, CVA, MI, type 2 diabetes, anemia, and then quality of life and satisfaction with the diet. Um, and they conducted... <laughs> this is where I start to get grossed out. Satisfaction with the diet. 
Well, and then separately. So we looked at unprocessed red meat, processed meat, and mixed unprocessed red and processed meat, which is the grossest phrase in the English language. How, how, are, <laughs> um, they, how are they defined? So great question. Um, I, I, there, there's sort of a throwaway section in one of the, the papers. So processed red meat is meat that has been either smoked, cured, or preserved in some way, I believe. Yeah, actually, I think it was red meat. I think processed meat could include white or red meat Correct. that was smoked, cured. Yes. Yes, thank you for clarification. only mammal meat. <laughs> right, <laughs> yes. Right, so not counting squab, even though you might be tempted to. Um, and so looking at this, they conducted, and this is where I'm going to need Rahul's help. There's, there's, I'm going to need a lot of help with this. But they looked at random effects dose-response meta-analysis. And then one investigator separately looked at the certainty of evidence using the grade assessment. And this is what I was talking about before, where according to this GRADE assessment, observational studies start at low certainty, and they can be downgraded for risk of bias if they're inconsistent, if they're not direct, if they're imprecise, they have publication bias. Sure. Um, So you've already mentioned, Paul, kind of the two most important things to think about when you're interpreting the results of a systematic review and meta-analysis, which is what do the results show? And then how confident are we in the recommendations we can make based on the quality of evidence? And that's worth talking about those two things separately for this paper. So what the results actually show, I mean, as you mentioned, you know, the using the grade framework, which is a very well accepted kind of, you know, used a lot for clinical trials um, to assess risk of bias. It's a framework for um, kind of trying to describe in a systematic way how vulnerable is, an, is a particular study to bias. Um, so that's, that's pretty uh, standard. Um, they use that to uh, you know, say that all cohort study or all observational studies um, by definition have to be uh, low quality evidence. They did have a provision in the methods though where they could uh, upgrade or downgrade based on the observation of a few things that would make it more likely that changing red meat in the diet is actually associated with a change in risk for cardiometabolic outcomes. And one of those things was if they found a dose response across their studies. The assumption that studies looking at red meat consumption and the impact on cardiovascular outcomes and all-cause mortality, the assumption that that would be a stronger effect or would have a larger effect size than what would be seen in observational studies looking at changes in dietary patterns, I actually sort of think it would be the opposite because changes in dietary patterns would also account for residual confounding and things that are not measured like dietary substitution. Like if somebody stops eating red meat, it's much more likely that they're going to replace that with something else in the diet. And so I think it's probably a more realistic comparison to, you know, study vegetarians as compared to non-vegetarians or people at the highest quartile of red meat consumption to people at the lowest quartile. Um, And I think that that would have upgraded the quality of the evidence um, from very low to low or low to moderate. So that was the one methodologic area where I sort of disagreed with the assumptions that they made. Apart from that, I actually thought they did a pretty good job of, you know, I have to take them at their word for, you know, identifying all the most important and relevant information. You know, a lot of the editorials that have been written about this have identified articles that have been left out. Yeah, like the, oh gosh. Pretty Med. The Ready Med is the big one, yeah. Pretty Med, yeah. But Rahul, can I ask you, they, they, I don't know where they got these numbers from, um, but it, it seemed unbelievable to me. So people, let's just say everyone eats three meals a day, 21 meals a week. They assumed that in in North America and Western Europe, 
that people ate two to four servings of red meat or processed meat per week. Now, I've I watch people eat uh, cafeterias, <laughs> parties. It seems like it's more than two to four meals per week that people are eating red meat, and so I don't. And then they. And then it, it seemed the what they were doing was saying, okay, if everyone ate three less servings, so almost to the point where pe- and, and they so they were like, so essentially, if people were eating no meat, uh, you know, we that that's what they that was their calculation because they're saying, you know, if they were at two to four and now they're eating three less, then they're almost at zero meat. That's correct. So so the point you bring up about the assumption that most Americans are eating two to four servings of red or processed meat a week. I too found that surprising. Uh, I don't have any data to controvert that apart from my personal experience watching other people eat in the cafeteria. Um, But, you know, you do bring up another important point, which is, you know, we don't know if the effect of going from seven to four servings a week is the same for your cardiometabolic risk as going from three servings to zero servings. And unfortunately, that question is not really answered by their data, but you have to think that it would be different to go completely vegetarian as compared to just decreasing your intake from a very high amount to a slightly less high amount. Yeah. But the other thing you, you mentioned, uh, Matt, that I just wanted to bring up. So, you know, they take a very population-based perspective in the meta-analysis, and they report their outcomes in terms of the risk difference per 1,000 persons. And there are significant differences. Cardiovascular mortality, right. they thought there would be four fewer events per 1,000. Uh, type 2 diabetes, they thought there would be six fewer events per 1,000. And then in their conclusions, they basically say that, you know, because these differences are small and people really don't want to stop eating meat, we don't think a recommendation is justified that people should eat any less. So I did a little bit of calculating on the back of an actual napkin. And uh, <laughs> I love can it. We, get, we need a scan of that so we can put it in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have to like show this in a way that, is, oh, my webcam's in a different place. <laughs> um, okay. So if you assume that the US population is 300 million people, just to you know, make it easy and round, you know, let's just say that, you know, three quarters of them are over 18. I looked this up. So this is an underestimate. So, you know, that 225 million people in the United States over 18, which is the population that they, that they studied was adults over 18. And let's just take out 25 million people. We know that's a way overestimate of how many vegetarians there are in the United States. So I'm purposely being conservative here. And let's just bring it down to 200 million people, okay? So that we're defining as the population at risk, the population of people whom these results could potentially apply to. And so if you take a population level view of this, you know, applying their estimate of four fewer cardiovascular deaths per 1,000 people Assuming that applies to a population at risk of 200 million people, that's 800,000 cardiovascular deaths per year. And so it boggles my mind that the (laughs) recommendation, that the interpretation of this could be that this isn't a big enough effect to to warrant a recommendation to eat less meat. Wow. Do you happen to know if that data is collected by the NHANES data set? Because if so, that would be pretty easy to go through. Yes, somebody should do this study. Uh, I have done this in a very sloppy way, and an epidemiologist yeah. would slap me across the face. I mean, I, I'm I'm already collecting the NHANES data for my non-anemic stuff. I mean, I could probably just add those variables. Yeah, I mean, you know, from the census, we know you know the population, and we know demography. You know, people under and over age 18, and then the data on vegetarians. Uh, I couldn't find a good population level estimate. 
estimate of that. So I said, you know, there's got to be fewer than 25 million vegetarians in the United States. Yeah. So, I mean, so you could probably extrapolate from the NHANES database, but you know, I'm, I'm looking at the data sets right now, and I think I might be able to do that, actually. Because it, it says where their foods are coming from, so like grocery stores, restaurants, bars, cafeterias, and it, it lists all of them, and it lists like the... It's pretty in-depth. So... I guess my my concern about this whole this whole study, just to kind of get down to some of the conclusions, is is that people the the headlines here is meat is good for you or don't worry about how much meat you're eating, and and I think that's that that has to be not true. <laughs> um, so why don't let's so I mean this is a, this is one of the studies that I think guided the guideline recommendation, right? Which is actually a whole separate thing into and of itself. So, because the the end point of this particular study was that there is low to very low certainty evidence that reducing unprocessed red meat by three servings per week is associated with a very small, so very minimalist language, a very small reduction in risk for cardiovascular mortality, stroke, and myotype two diabetes. So there's there's evidence, and there's the and the evidence is just what they're they're quantifying just by by the way that was collected because this is the way it almost has to be done as either low or low very low certainty. If I'm understanding things correctly, does that sound right, Rahul? Oh yeah, that's absolutely right. And yeah. so for the guideline itself, they did. More, they did parallel systemic reviews that looked on trials of meat consumption um, and its association with cardiometabolic and cancer outcomes. And then they did a fifth one, and this is the one that I find kind of fascinating that sort of guided the actual recommendation, it seems to me, is people's health-related values and their preferences. So they looked at the health effects and then basically studies that looked at how people felt about meat in general. Is that Am I understanding this process correctly? That's right. And, and those studies, you know, by their nature, were all, you know, limited to surveys, cross-sectional studies, and basically just capturing at a moment in time what is someone's opinion about their meat consumption. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I just I just feel like the, the the potential harm for putting out headlines that just like major, you know, major journal publishes publishes a study that says don't worry about how much meat you're eating or, you know, don't don't eat any less meat than you already are. And I, I feel like it's so much more nuanced than that. It's, so yeah, let's let's say the recommendations explicitly, just because this is the part I really wanted to talk about. I'm sorry, because I get all worked up. I'm, there's a lot of hand waving that the audience at home can't see. But the actual recommendations are for adults 18 age 18 years or older, continue your current unprocessed red meat consumption. And then there's a second recommendation for adults age 18 current. years of age or older, continue current processed meat consumption. So there's two recommendations about continuing your current levels of consumption, even though there there is evidence that actually decreasing consumption actually has health benefit. So it's That's weird. But the reason being, and again, I'm going to need Rahul's health on this, is because people like meat. <laughs> <laughs> you know, right? It sounds so funny, but it's sponsored by beef. Sorry, I, I didn't mean to cut you off, Paul. I mean, no, that was the end of the sentence. Like, <laughs> like people. So the, the counterpoint is like, if you don't eat beef or you don't like eat red meat, it'll impact your quality of life. Like you'll you'll be so sad that that actually outweighs the fact that it may actually have um, a small health benefit. And so, and in summary, they they weighed the two. They said, well, people people really seem to like meat. So I guess you know, even though there's probably some health benefit, it's not big enough to justify actually making a recommendation for reduction. So instead, just keep eating meat. Is I think where where we kind of landed, and that's. That's that's the part that I think is sort of fascinating is about how it's almost prescriptive to keep eating meat, which is just a weird way to summarize all the prior evidence that has kind of come up. And that's that's the part I was curious as to what sort of the rest of the, what the rest of you guys thought about, because that's the part that seems especially weird to me. I, I, I wonder if there was a similar phenomenon. I feel like periodically there's a study that comes out that says, oh, you know, a glass of red wine every night increases your risk of like, becoming an astronaut or whatever. And... Um, <laughs> 
you know, and, and that, like, again, what that actually means in terms of take. And I think, and I think to Matt's point about the message of a study being distorted, some of that is out of our hands, I think, in, in terms of researchers and scientists and physicians and health professionals, because the I mean, media and journalism is a completely different, um, like, completely different focus, completely different framework in terms of how they're presenting things and how they're going to get their uh, headline published. And so, you know, keep eating bologna is going to be a better headline than, you know, nuanced study takes into account multiple confounders and has low quality evidence. So there's going to be an inherently any time that these results are translated into media, um, there's going to be kind of, we're going to have lose some of the quality and some of the integrity of the study. Um, and to return to my earlier point, yeah, I think it gets complicated because it's really easy for people to latch on to that and say, well, I can have a glass of wine and my fried bologna, sa- fried bologna sandwich every night and that's like, yeah. I'm good to go. And um, no disrespect to anyone who does, you know, do that. Um, but the actual results and what they mean for health are a little more complex and they're just not being captured in mainstream media. The the problem is you, you kind of get into this quagmire to say it's either that fried bologna sandwich or nothing because – some people just can't afford anything better than what they're currently Right, and that's eating. why I said no disrespect, because I realized as I said it, it sounded yeah. classist, and I did not mean that. Right. Um, I, I think, and and just to talk about the, the systematic review that Paul presented, not not specifically a guideline, that, that systematic review, that was assuming people were eating only two to four servings of meat per week, which is, so that... What, two to four servings of processed meat? Either red meat or processed meat. And by decreasing it by three, by decreasing by three servings, they said, you know, they couldn't show much of a health benefit. So, so another way to look at that is like for people who are already not eating that much meat, you know, only a couple times a week, uh, they weren't able to show a huge health benefit. But I'm saying that I feel like people are eating two or three times that much meat as what they estimated. And so if, if those people did, you know, if people that are eating meat 10 times a week, eat it only once or twice a week. Uh, then maybe there would be a bigger health benefit. Well, the, the the other problem is that if you're going by self-reported servings, like yeah, yeah. I had a serving and it was just one steak. These were free right? frequency questionnaires, like yeah, very, yeah. It, exactly. Yeah, the report and self-report so, bias and the yeah. um, Rahul, right. what is it called when you can't remember things? Recall bias. <laughs> <Because> recall <laughs> bias. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Alzheimer's. I'm so done. <laughs> <laughs> that, just cut everything that I said tonight. Start that's to got to be the. Uh, that's going to be. The, that's got to be the, the bumper. Well, Sarah, the the point you bring up about you know how does the media interpret or how are how are you know sort of provocative publications like this handled in the media? You know what can the average person at home do to try to make sure that they're interpreting you know the science to the best of their ability? You know keeping in mind the strength of the evidence and how confident the recommendations are based on that. I mean, that is a, you know, boilerplate thing that is so often missed. And they even say on the, you know, in the abstract that uh, their uh, recommendation, similarly, the panel suggests adults continue current processed meat consumption along with red meat is a weak recommendation based on low certainty evidence. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I find no recommendation. The attitudinal stuff, just fascinating, because like, I couldn't help but thinking about, like, if we did the same thing with, say, tobacco use. Like, it's, yeah, yes, they, exactly. the evidence shows that it's bad for you, but also smoking makes you look cool, yeah. and, and girls dig it. Or, <laughs> or we recommend that you exercise every 50 minutes a week, but also people find that running kind of sucks, really, when you think about yeah. it. So, like, I so we can't really formally recommend it, because right. it hurts. So, I, I just, like, I just, I'm not sure... 
if we're going to be basing this solely on the basis of the evidence behind the health benefit, then sort of throwing in kind of how people feel about stuff. Yes. I, I find it a little bit yes. weird, but that, that maybe I'm misunderstanding um, intent here. No, I, I think you're right, Paul. And, you know, this is where, you know, it, it uh, this is where it becomes important to kind of read the study and know what the actual data say so that people can make their own conclusions. And the other useful thing about this is to try and put it in context. You know, what, what have other studies of major nutritional changes concluded about, you know, how much does saturated fat and trans fat affect cardiometabolic health? And I, you know, I'm not an expert in the field of nutritional epidemiology by any stretch, but, you know, just looking up, a, the, there was a 2015 Cochrane review on the effect of saturated fats on cardiovascular mortality. And the outcomes in that study were reported over 10,000 person years. So an order of magnitude less than what we're talking about here. It's, it's not crazy to, to believe that saturated fat intake even though the benefit of reducing that is small, but at a population level, those benefits accrue, and it's still worthwhile to recommend that at a population level, you know, these small effects do matter. And right. just mm-hmm. because there are worse things for our health, like smoking right. and drinking, is not right. a is not a kind of uh, that that criticism does not suggest action. It doesn't provide a way forward. Exactly. Right. Um, and uh, I know we need to, to wrap up the discussion, but I, I just want to point out it's actually four years exactly because the World Health Organization released the um, somewhat controversial uh, report about carcinogenicity and, and red meat. Um, I don't know if you guys remember that because that was yes, also all over the news. Yeah, about about um, five years ago now. Yeah. Uh, oh, no, excuse me, four years. I think it um, was that red meat is probably carcinogenic yeah. and processed meat is carcinogenic. Yes, full stop. <laughs> right. And it's, you know, and again, there's a lot of really interesting issues here. Um, and uh, yeah, there's a lot to unpack here. But yeah. uh, these these guidelines are meaningful. They do raise a lot of important questions. Um it's just tricky because there are so many other factors that influence people's health and also influence the availability of different foods. Yeah. And and I am before we get emails about this, I'm aware there was they did look at cancer in one of the other systematic reviews and they did not really find strong <laughs> strong evidence there either. I just wanted wanted to ask Rahul one thing real quick. So what are your thoughts on taking a study that essentially has population health implications, but then offsetting those with personal choice? I mean, that to me seems like a a contradiction. It's complicated. Um, You know, I completely agree that the meta-analysis on all-cause mortality and cardiovascular outcomes, the outcomes are reported from a population perspective, risk difference per thousand people. But then the recommendations are very much phrased uh, and targeted towards the individual. Right. And the authors specifically say that they did not take into account considerations of animal welfare or the environmental impact of eating red and processed meat. Probably because that would have been really hard to do, and you know, fairly they you know note that that's kind of outside the scope of what they wanted to do. But it does, um, it is troubling um, to you know use data. I, sh- I shouldn't phrase it that way. It is surprising to see authors use data that is very clearly making statements about the population impact of reducing meat consumption by three servings a week, and then making recommendations based on that targeted towards the individual without regard for the societal and population impact. So how do we want to wrap this Paul up? Paul needs to Paul, give us hotcakes. Uh, you going to give some pumpkin, pumpkin flavored hotcakes? Spooky cakes. 
give like two and a half sausage patties. Like, I feel like that'd be appropriate. For this. Like, I, I, I think. <laughs> M- oh, impossible! Can we, can we use that? Stuff? Are we allowed to say that on the show? It's all those brands. <laughs> Probably I mean, not. They sponsor us. Oh yeah, sorry. Can we bleep They're, that out? Absolutely not. No, the curbside is probably brought to you by Impossible Burger. Let's just see how it goes. <laughs> okay, so um, I think that's a good good place to end on that. So, that so one. I'd like to end off with just a couple of honorable mentions. I just want to highlight a couple. I think one was one that uh, Matt suggested about comparative accuracy of focused cardiac ultrasonography and clinical examination for left ventricular dysfunction and valvular heart disease. Going back to um, all our discussions on POCUS, um, I think (laughs) Paul also brought up an an article about association between soft drink consumption and mortality of 10 European countries, go along with the themes of most of his articles. And my pick was... <laughs> and happy Halloween. And my pick was actually, you know, friend of the show, <laughs> Tony Brew. He did a great perspective on why is a cow, curiosity, tutorial, and the return of the why. So if you guys are interested in those articles, links to those and all the other ones that we had sort of brainstormed about before this episode, go to our show notes. You can see those. So Raul, I want to end off with how was your first first time on the Curbsiders and what are your takeaway points? Oh my God, so much fun. I'm jazzed, you might say. Uh, (laughs) Takeaway points, you know, whenever you're reading, whenever you're reading anything in the literature, the most important things for you to understand are what is the question the authors are trying to answer? How is the comparison being made? And what are the findings that are most important from the study? What are the primary outcomes? That's the starting point. And then the rest of it, you just have to talk to friends and colleagues and think about what the impact of chance and bias are and try to make sense of the best available data we have to take care of the patients in front of you. I couldn't have said it better. All right, guys, on to the outro. Yep, this has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Especially appropriate for this episode. Yeah, exactly. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. That is correct, Paul, because we are committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show in iTunes or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Again, that's thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producers for this episode, the one and only Chris the Chumanju and Sarah Phoebe Roberts. And to our social media team, Phoebe! And to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs, Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris the Chumanju, who is still on ye old Facebook. Until next time, I've been Stuart Kent Brigham. I've been Chris the Chumanju. And I wanted to thank Rahul Ganatra for being our special guest tonight. And I wanted to thank Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham for the wonderful theme music that you hear playing over my voice right now. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And our main Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams, thank you and And goodbye. Enjoy your turkey and processed meat tomorrow.
You're doing great. You add so much credibility to oh this God. show. Yeah. Oh, yeah. guys. I, uh, yeah, I, fantastic. I would like I to feel like we're having a journal club. <laughs> no, I would like to debrief with you at some point about how to do this better because. No, no, no. You're, you're fine. You're doing amazing. You need uh, to develop your own, your own way forward. Son. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Dad. <laughs>